It has been a tough coming up in a year for most people. Man, I cannot wait to get back to some normalcy and just forget this all happened. Ja feel, man. Ja definitely feel. I am slowly dying without parties and bars and mass gatherings. See, this is where you and I differ. I miss hanging out with some of my friends, but I am perfectly fine with no more big parties or bars. I'm just gonna forget you spoke such blasphemous vile and just move on. No parties or no bars, which which is blasphemy. Please, please, all these words, they injure me so. (laughs) Ridiculous. Redonkulous even. And too social for your own good. Uh, yeah, I really maybe. Listeners, Heathen is withering away and he needs your support. For the low, low price of an email to contact at wholesomeandheathen.com, you can sustain my co-host. <laughs> I won't forget your kind words. All this talk of forgetting, we should probably start the show. Oh yeah, that thing. Yeah. Don't be Aristotle by a Plato knowledge, cause we got our game I like. We'll Vinny, Vitty, Vici, and Mustachio, Nietzsche, and we'll never miss the marks, cause I'm wholesome, he's heathen, and this is our podcast show. You're not a loner loser. You're a loser on loan. On loan, okay. Um, <laughs> wait, hang on, hang on. I didn't mean it, you're cool. Oh yeah, I was just unfriending you real quick. welcome to the greatest show on earth don't you think that's a bit much greatest amateur show better but still a bit overzealous surely we must be the greatest amateur podcast talking about philosophy through the lens of pop culture when you get that niche uh you may be right in the world i'll allow it welcome dear listeners he's the patron saint of heathens and he's the most wholesome person you'll ever meet. Ah, so what do you got cooked up for us today, my philosophizing friend? <laughs> That's not a word. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll allow it. This one is real good and a crowd pleaser. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Ooh, so sad, but so beautiful. That movie is definitely a crowd favorite. Jim Carrey is usually goofy, but he proves in this that he can be a lot more serious. Yeah, like like in the mask. <laughs> Not quite the sentiment I was going for, but uh, but sure. I was thinking more like The Truman Show. Oh yeah, and, and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. <laughs> you, you know, who am I to tell you what's serious and what's not? Sure, The Grinch can be serious. <laughs> uh, but this movie delves into something that we've all wished for at some point. At an especially heartbreaking moment in our lives, when we're devastated by something falling apart, often a relationship, we say to ourselves, I wish that never happened, or I wish I could just forget. Heartbreaking and devastating are the perfect descriptors for it. Who hasn't wished for something to be different? So the movie starts with Jim Carrey playing the role of our protagonist, Joel, and he wakes up and looks clearly like a man who is not pleased at having to live the day. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a rough start. Just looking at him and how he carries himself, his apartment and everything, we get the sense that Joel is not living a particularly fulfilling existence. He schleps to the station and awaits his train to work. Then, suddenly, surprising even himself, Joel sprints across the station and jumps onto a train going somewhere entirely different. 
he decides on a whim to play hooky and go to the beach instead. A beautiful sunny day off at the beach. That'll revitalize a sorrowful spirit. It's not quite the beach day most people imagine, however. He goes out to the beach on a freezing, overcast, rainy New York morning in February. Maybe not postcard perfect, but going to an overcast beach during a storm can be pretty therapeutic. I've done that before. Cut school on a rainy day and drive out to watch the stormy waves. It is therapeutic. Hey, don't cut school, listeners. Nerd. You're a bad influence. Hey, life is short. You'll be dead before you know it. Cut school. Live a little while you still can. I will not be party to this. Oh, parties. I remember those days. <laughs> Dang it. While you reminisce, I'll continue the story. So, on his way back from the beach, a blue-haired, bright orange sweatshirted woman named Clementine starts chatting up Joel on the train. He's pretty introverted, and she's the exact opposite, and talks to him like they've been intimate friends for ages and didn't just meet. They click immediately, and it looks like the start of a great romance. Then the story unfolds through skipping back and forth along the timeline, but what we learn, what the main premise of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is, is that Joel and Clementine used to be together, but they broke up and were so distraught that each decided to erase their memories of the other. Dr. Howard invented this machine that can map out how certain memories interact and where they exist in the brain and then can target specific memories to be deleted. This movie isn't about the science, so just suspend your disbelief and accept that it's possible to entirely wipe the memory of someone. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Should memories be deleted? Not just willy-nilly, but in order to move on or be happier after some particularly difficult time. What would that entail? What would that mean? Don't you say something about having a bad memory? Ah, yes. Yes, one of Heathen's keys to happiness is my absolutely atrocious memory. <laughs> that cannot be a healthy way to live. Hey, I don't really have a choice in the matter. I've always had a pretty poor memory, but I really have considered that it may be one reason why I'm a particularly chipper person. Because you forget all the bad stuff? Isn't that more of a selective memory you're the psychologist you told me that but i i do tend to forget bad things that happen but i'd say time lessens the pain of most bad memories for everyone doesn't it i'm thinking more someone will tell me something good like happy friday or what are your plans for the three-day weekend or something like that and i'll usually be oblivious to the fact that it's a friday or hadn't realized that there was like a long weekend coming up so it's good news <laughs> but then Three hours later, I've already forgotten, and when someone else says it, I get excited all over again and get to like, enjoy another hit of dopamine. Aw, that sounds like short-term memory loss, but you know, I've seen you experience that, and it's, it's kind of adorably innocent. I don't have any brain damage, as far as I'm aware. Maybe you just don't remember it. <laughs> you joke, but I wouldn't put myself past that. It is great getting to experience the same small joys repeatedly, though. It's like... Two for the price of one. Also, the doctor in the movie says that this procedure is kind of like brain damage. But? <laughs> but technically no worse than a night of heavy drinking. Yeah, yeah, we all know you've got a comment to make about that. <laughs> I've got no comment. I think the doctor is explaining your short-term memory loss. Hey, hey, this is how it's always been. Don't hate on those of us who have bad memories. You know, Nietzsche said, Blessed are the forgetful, for they get the better even of their blunders. I did know that, but that was in the movie. They said it like 18 times. Don't <laughs> pretend you're all smart reciting Nietzsche. Uh, busted. All right. 
<laughs> so how do we get to the philosophical parts? Well, there's there's a lot of different ways we could take this. We could talk about philosophy of identity and how memory plays a critical part in you being you, even though your physical parts might change. We already talked about identity way early on in our second ever episode. Or how our memory of events is never an objective picture of what happens because it's tainted by all of our biases. Okay, okay, but that gets more into my realm of psychology. How about just the saying, ignorance is bliss? I could try and play it out with that. Let's go with that one, but my stance is that ignorance is bad. Is it intellectually honest to have a stance before we even discuss it? Then you're coming to the table already biased. We all come to the table already biased from our own life experiences. Bias is unavoidable. Shouldn't we try to minimize it though, if we can? Yeah, but like what if we what if we can't? Different but also fascinating discussion. Let's let's stick to ignorance for now. <laughs> Finally you admit it. You're ignorant. <laughs> no no, you child. <laughs> okay. We've all heard that saying, ignorance is bliss. And in the book 1984, they say Ignorance is strength, but that, that one's besides the point. Wait, wait, what does ignorance is strength mean? It's one of the slogans of the dystopian government, but it's kind of the same sentiment as ignorance is bliss, I think. <laughs> so what does that one mean? Besides being a banger of a song by the band Our Last Night. We can miss what we want to miss Until it's too late to turn around And pick up all the pieces Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss means if you're not aware of something, you get to not worry about it. Once you learn about something, good or bad, you're then burdened by it. Like learning that people who are drowning oftentimes die in pools next to dozens of people because, unlike in the movies, drowning people don't splash around like crazy and others don't even realize what's happening. Well... Yeah, except I didn't know about that, and now I'm upset. <laughs> I've upset your bliss. Is it better to be unhappy but to know, or to be happy and live not knowing? A great philosophical inquiry, yes. <laughs> if I hadn't already figured it out, it's better to know because now I can watch out for drowning people. Bam. You say so you can watch people drown, or? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so some philosophers would struggle with that question of, oh, I love the way you said it, happiness or this and that. But yeah, most philosophers would struggle with that for a while and write treatises apropos of the topic, but I appreciate your efficiency. Yeah, no, definitely better to know, and this philosophy stuff is easy. <laughs> My book comes out tomorrow. <laughs> All right, let's give the other side a shot. In Eternal Sunshine, a character says that the purpose of the memory erasing procedure is, quote, to let people begin again. She says, babies are so pure and free and so clean, but adults are a mess of sadness and phobias. Then she quotes the great English poet Alexander Pope and says this. The quote goes, how happy is the blameless vessel's lot, the world forgetting by the world forgot. Eternal sunshine of a spotless mind. Each prayer accepted and each wish resigned. I want to be a great, big, huge elephant. Hey, we got the title. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Eternal happiness and bliss of the unburdened mind. After a bad breakup, I definitely see how someone could want that, to just 
forget so they're not depressed by the loss. That makes total sense as a desire, but it's neither healthy nor an effective way to go about things. So the woman who quotes the poem, Mary, actually underwent the same memory-erasing treatment after hooking up with her married boss, but then she falls into the same cycle of being attracted to him and wanting to start something. She didn't even know she had attempted it before and that it didn't work out. And even with Joel and Clementine, the main characters, they broke up because they didn't work well. As we see more of the memories, we clearly see that they were not healthy together. So it's sad for them that they're not together, but it also probably is a good thing. But after wiping their memories, they meet and start a relationship again. The romantic interpretation of this movie might be something like, love will find a way, or that they're drawn to each other because of true true love or <laughs> some other phonus balonus but dude repeating the same behavior reminds me of something called transient global amnesia have you heard of this i've heard of amnesia but i forgot the definition <laughs> you dork <laughs> okay so amnesia is wild the thought that we could suddenly forget large chunks of memories is scary but as far as i know most amnesia is caused by some sort of damage like a stroke or a seizure, some some other damage to the brain. Transient global amnesia is this insane and thankfully super rare thing where someone just abruptly experiences memory loss and loses the ability to create new memories. It's literally like a goldfish where the person will be speaking and mere seconds later will already have forgotten a sentence or two back. It's also very temporary, so over the course of a few days they're memory bubble grows larger and larger and they go back to normal and remember everything. The characters in this movie aren't having constant memory loss though. I bring this up because it gets into another super super fascinating concept that we've discussed before. Free will. I think free will is an illusion and you can hear all about that in an older episode but short summary I think we're taking certain inputs and outputting our reactions and given the same stimuli as inputs we have the same reactions. And there's a video of a woman in the hospital with transient global amnesia who I think demonstrates my point. She's talking to her daughter and immediately forgetting their conversations. But then when her daughter repeats herself, the mom has the same reactions over and over and over again. Frequently, the exact same words. There's a short video on YouTube if you search for... It's Tuesday, transient global amnesia. But listen to this version I edited down. Okay, so remember, it's August. I'm trying to remember the last date, uh, the last thing I remember. August 24th. My birthday is already passed? Yep. I'm trying to remember the last date I remember. This is creepy. I know. Oh. You remember what day of the week it is? No, I don't have a clue. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Is it after my birthday? Yes. It's Tuesday. I'm trying to remember the last date I remember. And it's already past my birthday though? Yep. This is so creepy. I'm trying to remember the last date, I the last thing I remember. Mm -hmm. It's already after my birthday? Yep. Darn. I'm trying to remember the last thing that I, you know, that I remember. Mm -hmm. August 24th. I missed my birthday. You didn't miss it. You were there. Oh. So creepy. Every two minutes, we're Can doing a loop. We ask the same thing. Again? Yes, we do. That we have had the same conversation over and over again every two minutes oh for the last two and, gosh, and a half hours. Two and a half hours. Yes. Get out of here. No. Same thing. Two same thing. Hours. And that's all from a video that was less than seven minutes long. Okay. 
I agree with her. That is creepy. Same input, same output. We are automata. <laughs> so, even though this movie probably isn't driving at free will, you could take it as an example of perhaps our lack of free will. I don't know if I'd go quite that far. She did frequently repeat the same words, but not always the exact same thing. I'd argue that in the case of our lead characters, we may be looking at something like brain chemistry on attraction, or maybe things like pheromones over consistent and repeated brain processes. But you know, I would just argue that we would react to those same stimuli in a consistent manner, and that whatever avenue you take in response was always what you were going to choose, so why do you even bother? <laughs> because I like having the choice to bother. <laughs> You're a pain in my probably digitally recreated and simulated reality, but... <laughs> Oh man, yeah, that was a uh, that's a lot to process. Speaking of simulated reality, check out these memory-related ailments that sound like straight-up glitches in the Matrix. As weird as these are, I assure you, they are real. There's this thing called astereognosis, where a person can't identify what an object is through touch alone. Like, if you close your eyes and someone put a cup in front of you, you could feel the cup in all its cupness, so to speak. Mm. Most of us can easily figure out what it is. Someone with astereognosis can describe the details of what they're feeling, but absolutely be unable to identify the object as a cup. They kind of show this in Anchorman 2 when he spills a drink and he tries, like, cleaning it up with an orange. And he was blind. He's like, I can't because I'm blind. And it's like, that doesn't have anything to do with blindness because it doesn't. It's this. So, um, oh, and there there goes Heathen. Okay, he's getting up. I guess he doesn't like Anchorman 2. Uh, I guess I'll just keep going. Um, there's also prosopognosia, which some people think is being bad with faces, but it actually takes it to a whole nother level. You might be thinking about how you used to mix up Alex and Mark when you first started at your job because they kind of look similar. But someone with prosopagnosia actually can't identify faces at all. They can see eyes and noses and lips, but it's a different part of the brain that puts all the components together into the whole, and that part doesn't allow them to see the face as a whole. And it's not just with randos, those affected usually ID their spouses or significant others by hairstyle or what they wear, because faces cannot be remembered. There's a part of the movie where Joel is walking through a partially erased memory, and he can see and talk to people, but their faces are gone. We still know it's the doctor and Joel himself from the context of what they're wearing, but that's kind of what people with prosopagnosia do. Sorry, I had to uh, refresh my drink, but I heard it all, I heard it all. And it reminds me of the book the man who mistook his wife for a hat, where a man mistakes his wife for a hat. <laughs> oh, is that what happens? <laughs> Oliver Sacks, right? Um, he's a brilliant neurologist and studied lots of these bizarre conditions. The man who mistook his wife for a hat had a similar thing called visual agnosia, much easier to say than the other ones. But I wouldn't say those are exactly memory issues. Rather, it's more a neurological issue assembling a whole from the parts. That's fair. It's a bit different, but memories in these conditions both get at our interpretations of reality. And I think it's fair to discuss a little bit about reality in this episode. Less existentially than we normally do, but maybe more in the context about how much of our memory is actually reality. It's like how children for a while could have memories basically forced into them by detectives looking for answers to cases. They would tell the kids it happened so much that the kids eventually created a memory where it did. But forensics would later show it to be impossible. Ooh, that's kind of like if you repeat a lie over and over again, it kind of becomes true. But mm. or, or just like false memories in general, right? Yeah, basically the idea that assuming there is a true reality and we're in it, our 
own personal realities can come to conflict with the true reality. Quote unquote, true, you know. <laughs> Expanding on the kids creating fake memories, eyewitness testimony in general is a very, very flawed part of our justice system. Yes, absolutely. The thing is that most people think of memory like a recording device where you videotape an event and store it in your memory and play it back when you're remembering, but that is not how it works. Instead of storing information as it objectively is, we pick up the meaning behind what's happening or make up our own interpretation of events, and that's what's actually being stored. We remember what makes sense to us instead of what might actually have been. And usually it's close enough that it's fine, but not always. Each of us remembers according to our biases and preconceived beliefs. See, biases everywhere. Gotcha. There are loads of cases where people went to jail based on eyewitness testimony, but once we figured out DNA, the evidence unequivocally proved them innocent. Some of the witnesses might have been lying, but most probably believed their version of events, even though they didn't really happen. How nuts is that? That's actually very troublesome, and it's also nuts to think that we wouldn't really buy this if we hadn't discovered how to test for DNA in forensics. Right? Yeah. And I also love that that, that makes you reconsider your view of the world and existence. One minute you're there with the world solidly beneath your feet, and next thing you know, even your basest understandings of the world are thrown out of whack and being questioned. Gotta love that. A great example of this story is of Ronald Cotton. I learned about this one back in high school. Jennifer Thompson Canino was attacked and sexually assaulted in her own home. She would later single out Ronald Cotton as the man who had, without a doubt, sexually assaulted her. Her eyewitness testimony and strong emotional appeal led to the conviction of Ronald Cotton. He spent 10 years in jail before DNA testing proved he was innocent, with the added revelation that the actual culprit had been in the very same lineup where Mr. Cotton had been wrongfully identified. Ugh. Ronald Cotton and his accuser, Jennifer Thompson Canino, now work together to spread information on DNA testing and the fallibility of memory and eyewitness testimony. Oh, wow, that's an incredible story. And it speaks to how little we can be certain on what we remember. Your own memory could be unreliable. Just the philosophical implications. You gotta love it. <laughs> really? Uh, that makes most people uncomfortable. There's a lot of room for growth in being uncomfortable. We should all strive to be more uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I actually kind of like that. Uh, back to the movie, what else do you have for us? You mentioned how it's natural to have a desire to forget bad things, but forgetting actually may not be good for you. Yeah, because then Mary and Joel and Clementine all do the same painful things over and over again. It got me thinking of another way that forgetting isn't actually beneficial. This was a touch subtler in the movie, but when Joel and Clementine meet at the very beginning, Clementine says not to make any jokes about her name, and Joel says he doesn't know any. She's surprised that he doesn't know the Oh my darling, oh my darling, oh my darling, Clementine. That song. Mm. And he says he's never heard it. But way later in the movie, we learn that that was actually their second first time meeting each other. <laughs> right, because the opening scenes are after both their memories are erased. But during their first first time meeting, Clementine says the same thing and asks him not to make any jokes about her name. And his response originally was, oh, you mean like the Oh My Darling, Oh My Darling, Oh My Darling Clementine song? Mm-hmm. And then he tells her that that Huckleberry Hound song was his favorite thing as a kid. Oh, snap. So when Joel had his memory erased, one of his happiest things from childhood, which had nothing to do with his girlfriend Clementine, but now because that memory is also connected to her, that gets erased too. So he loses a core part of his childhood. To lose the bad, he had to lose some of the good too. 
Oh, man, that's deep. That is how memory works, though. And as we learn and grow, independent memories can get linked together through new connections. That's how all analysis happens, I imagine. Mm. You can look at separate events and draw connections or similarities, and that doesn't necessarily change the memory, but it changes how it was indexed in your mind. That's as great a cue as I'm going to get to talk about some of the other not-so-noticed aspects of the film. We definitely all see that Clementine has brightly dyed hair. That's one of her things. She says she's impulsive, and she likes to change the color of her hair frequently. You gotta love scene girls. I don't know if she qualifies as a scene girl, but at least now we know your taste hasn't changed since high school. (laughs) (laughs) Throughout the movie at different points, Clementine has green, red, orange, and blue hair, but there's a hidden meaning behind it. Check this. When Clementine and Joel meet... The first time or the second first time? or (laughs) The first first time. Joel's in a relationship, but... He's not happy, and his life is very blah, and I picture gray overtones and melancholy notes as a descriptor of his life. He's not happy. But then he meets Clementine, and that changes everything. Her hair is green, like springtime. A fresh start. A renewal. Precisely, mon friend. As we, that sounded more French than German. Man, I don't know languages. Um, <laughs> if we follow the real chronology of the relationship, her next hair color is red, as in the summer of their love. Red is... Love, red is passion, it's the height of their relationship, and every memory where she has red hair is a great and tender memory, it's their honeymoon phase. And during the erasing process, Joel realizes he doesn't want to lose the memory of her after re-experiencing a red hair memory. He had forgotten all the good times. Next, her hair is orange, which is autumn, and signifies the decline of their relationship, or the fall. All these memories are them snapping at one another, bickering and fighting. And orange is kind of a faded red. Their feelings are fading. Right, yeah. And finally, after they break up, Clementine's hair is blue. Maybe because they're both blue isn't sad, but also because winter is death. It's the death of their relationship, and they've literally erased one another. But then winter is also just the time before spring, and it's all cyclical. Which makes sense, because when Joel and Clementine meet for the second time... Her hair is still blue, but, and I might be imagining this part, there seems to almost be a hint or undertone of green going on. It's like the circle of life, but way grosser because it's about Lou. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like that was in a different language. You don't even know how to say love. Um, (laughs) Your disgust at the most wholesome thing in the world never fails to amuse me. Well... That about wraps up this episode. I hope you took away something useful, dear listener. I just keep thinking of that one song where he's like, L-O-V-E is a word I never learned to pronounce. <laughs> 303, that's that's where you go with, yeah. and this is like a deep episode, yeah. and then you're like, but also 303. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, man. I hope you enjoyed our voices for a short while. I always enjoy the thought of you listening to us. Sounds creepy when you say it like that, but, you know, whatever. Thanks for listening, (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Please keep doing so, no matter what weird thing he says. See you next time. Wholesome and Heathen do not endorse the destruction of your memories to evade painful truths of your reality and or your past. They do, however, endorse the destruction of all of your associated memories of chocolate. This will give you the joint benefits of getting to experience chocolate for the first time over and over again, as well as immediately morphing you into the kind of hipster who hasn't even heard of chocolate. If we don't make you as insufferable as us, are we really doing our jobs? 
Tell us what popular thing you'd erase so you feel cool and not mainstream at wholesomeandheathen.com.